Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Starting a company allows you to be back in control. The weekly show that brings together military spouse and veteran founders who are doing remarkable things in the business world. I can't imagine there's anything out there stronger than the bond that military and veteran entrepreneurs have. We'll hear their story, the story of their business, and lessons learned. Joy can override the worries and depression. Here are your hosts, Carmen Nazario and Josh Carter. All right, everybody, welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast. I am Josh Carter. I'm your host. Carmen Nazario is off for the summer. We hope she's enjoying her summer, this wild, crazy summer we found ourselves in. If you are new to the, the show, welcome. We are excited you are here. Uh, every week, we get to talk to these really cool entrepreneurs that just have one more thing on their resume, which is service to our country. And this week, we have a good friend of the show, good friend of mine, has sat on a board with me and has listened to me drone on at nausea of just various topics. But uh, the very lovely Daniela Young, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And also, you never drone. You're very succinct. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Uh, so I get to introduce you as a sp TEDx speaker, author, entrepreneur. The author piece is interesting that I really want to dig into. But, uh, you know, for, for listeners that haven't heard your story, search YouTube. It's a fascinating story. I don't want to dig too much because I don't want to give, give too much away. But talk a little bit about your background and why you entered the military. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, jump right in. I was born and raised as a third generation member of one of what I think is the crazier religious cults in at least modern history. Um, so it was called the Children of God. You know, I always talk about being third generation as significant because it pretty much existed because my great grandmother gave land and her daughter to the the prophet early on in the 60s, right? When this sort of similar to right now, the country was in an upheaval, young people were searching for something new, and my grandmother ran off to join this uh, this new religious movement. And then my mother was born into it around the times so that things organization wise were really starting to crash and go wrong. Um, I was born to her at uh, the age of barely 15. And then I grew up in this lifestyle, again, which was kind of a lot of American and Western kids around the world living in communes behind, you know, third world countries behind very high walls. We didn't go to school because it was our job to, you know, prepare for the end of the world as the special army of God. And, um, you, you know, that. I mentioned Sorry. this last time, but you, you say this was, and I know it's taken a lot to get to the point where you are right now to sort of just sort of just talk about it at ease, like this, this thing that just happened in your life. And it's just this background, but it's insanely fascinating. There's so much to unpack here, but, but the thing I think is really interesting is the, the piece where it's third generation. Did you ever have a conversation with your mom or your, your grandma to say like, why are we here? Um, not really, you know, one of the other, so a couple interesting things about being either a second or third generation cult member versus being somebody who kind of went down the path of culture and then isolation and then brainwashing is that it's all, you know, when you're born into it. Right. And so growing up, like 
I'm pretty sure I was just born an analytical atheist. It was just in a world where I didn't know that was a choice. Um, and I was fortunate enough in many ways to have a mother who was born into it as well. Yeah. And so she was, you know, at once both a victim and yet in my life still a propagator kind of of uh, this movement. So, you know, there were. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, there were definitely a couple moments in my life, you know, when uh, people have asked me, like, why you? Why were you so different? And I say, well, one of my first memories is three years old, my mom reading with me, teaching me to read and telling me that the only thing you need from society is for someone to teach you how to read and everything else you can teach yourself. And that was kind of something that has always stuck with me, kind of a, a great no excuse attitude. Um, and I turned out to be someone that loved reading and teaching myself things. And then, you know, later on, um, obviously, not, not too much detail, but I've written a lot about this. You guys can check it out. Um, check out the last episode. But, you know, as I was 15 and... 15 was the year where you did kind of like extra indoctrination because at 16 you become an adult member. So it's almost like, uh, you know, if you're in the army going through a, the, the special forces course or something to get to like this next level of your career and you do all this reading and all this special training and I was done. I was like, I'm not going to do this. Someone said to me, you know, you're going to have your own babies soon. And I said, get me out of here. Wow. And what that meant in my life was I had to give up, you know, if I wanted my freedom, I had to give up everything I ever knew, every friend, every family, I would be a backslider, I would be excommunicated, I would not be allowed to be anywhere in that world. So as much as I wanted the freedom, I was also 15 and scared and knew nothing about real life. And my mom was the one when I was wavering, um, you know, she's fully in, she's a leader at this point. She has seven kids, seven stepkids. And she still took me aside and she was like, Daniela, go, you know, like we have a, your older stepsister who's willing to take you, just go, just get out, go do it. And that now, you know, it took her another decade to get her life together and leave the cult and get on her own. But and, and sorry, long-winded way to answer your question. Now we've talked about it. Yeah. And when people ask me, you know, what is my relationship like with my parents? It's different. You know, my dad, who's someone that as an adult made the decision to join the call and spent 40 years in it and doesn't see it the way we see it versus my mom, who has spent 10 years having the hard conversations with me. And we both basically study organizations and group thought just nonstop on our own, trying to understand, you know, because when you come from an organization like a cult or like the military or anything that just kind of owns you heart and soul, you understand that nothing is black and white. Yeah. And so, you know, yes, crazy people were doing evil things, but they were also your friends and your families and people, you know, in many ways had good hearts. And so trying to understand how humans and how groups come to that is, has been my obsession for, sure. well, almost 20 years now. So it, your mom was really critical to this. And now that I, I didn't know that she had left the cult since then, how, how important has that been for you to 
contextualized your your early experience as a young person versus what you're going through raising your own daughter? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I once had a psychiatrist or psychologist tell me that we study the extremes of humanity so that we can understand the rest of us. Mm -hmm. And I found that to be really true in my life. I mean, the book I'm writing is a book about all women. It just happens to have a crazy, interesting sort of angle to it. And with parenting, you know, you can read any great parenting book and it'll talk about how having children kind of triggers all of your own traumas and all of your own things. Yep. And so it's been very interesting for me raising a daughter who is a very willful, very sassy, very logical, um, and very wild human being. And she is essentially me. And I will, like, I will see basically why even within the cult, I was so different. I had such a hard time um, because she's basically me, but she's growing up and in, in an environment of entire control. And, you know, even with my mom, it was interesting. My mom was there with me when my daughter was born. She helped me. My daughter almost died at birth. Um, so it was a very kind of like extreme emotional experience and then when, you know, I always say when we got my daughter, like me and my mom, uh, she looked exactly like me to the point that I think maybe it was even more an emotional experience for her to like hold her child all over again 30 years later. Oh. And we've talked about her and I've written as her about like, this is the do over baby. You know, this is the one we get to like really investigate and try to do it right um, with Lorelai, my daughter. Um, so it, it's been a really nice gift and it's been a, a wonderful bonding experience for both of us. Um, helped me understand my mother much better and just all of sure. those things. It, it's intriguing. And like I said, I don't want to, I don't want to dive too deep in this because we really spent a lot of time in the last episode about your background. Uh, but you then go to your stepsisters uh, in Texas, right? And yes. so what was that experience once you got there? And you talked in the last episode about going to high school, but talk and dive a little bit more into that, that experience, because you went from cult to public high school in a matter of what months really. Uh, yeah, three weeks. Um, so, you know, first of all, when it's like, Oh, I moved to Texas to live with a sister. Doesn't really give the idea. You know, this was a person who I'd met three times. Um, you know, her father had raised me as my stepfather, but I really had, in some ways, had no relationship with her. In other ways, we came from sort of the exact same life, you know, and in many ways, you know, all 5,000 children that grew up in that environment are essentially siblings. So it was very interesting. Um, at the same time, you know, she was not someone who had at that point figured out her life yet. Sure. And so, you know, always be grateful to her. She put a roof over my head, but I essentially kind of moved to Texas and lived on my own mm. while she was, you know, across town and working. And, you know, we show up to enroll me in high school and I literally have a passport and a social security card. And I've never even heard of school records or vaccination records or right. any of that. And they just sort of looked at me and said, you know, we can't enroll you. You don't exist. Um, always great to hear. 
Yeah. So, you know, it took, it took three weeks and I, I ended up, you know, convincing them to enroll me and, and let me do what I do, which is, you know, kind of show up and surpass the expectations. And, but it, it was very, you know, I remember the, the guard the first day trying to give me directions, asking me if I knew where my locker was. And my problem was, I didn't even know what a locker was. Yeah. So it was, you know, that level of, (laughs) yeah, that level of not just complete inability to know what you're doing, but also inability to express the question. You know, I'll never forget the first time I took a test on a Scantron, I filled it out with a pen. And my teacher literally thought I was just being a sarcastic 16 year old. And I had no clue why I'd gotten a zero on a test. And I, you know, we didn't even know how to sort of bridge this translation yeah. gap. That's fascinating. So, yeah, high school was rough. <laughs> but you got through it, which is exciting. You got your your diploma. And then you got into uh, your transition into the military. Talk a little uh, bit so I went to college first, to college actually. First. So, yeah, you, I did. You mentioned last time you got a scholarship because the essay you had to write was what makes you unique. And... Obviously, that's a pretty lengthy topic. Yeah, yeah. And it was, you know, very interesting, the timeline and the way things work out with that. Through all of this, this whole time we've been talking through, I realized that I grew up in a very different way. I realized I wanted out. I realized I wanted freedom. I had not realized that I'd grown up in a cult, which was like our utmost evil word until... I was watching TV and a murder-suicide came across the screen with the founder's son, who was the boy that had grown up with my mom, was like supposed to be our next prophet. And, you know, he'd basically gone after his abusers. Wow. And I was standing there and I, it was almost like I had this like, oh, that's why I'm so different, you know, like, (laughs) oh, okay. And like two days later in class, we're assigned write your college essay, which at the point at that time I was going to join the Marines because I had no way to pay for college. Mm -hmm. And the essay was, yeah, was what makes you different. And I was like, all right, I grew up in a cult. I'm doing this. (laughs) Um, and, And was completely convinced afterwards that they were going to kick me out when I was called in to speak to my counselor. Um, I thought like the cops were waiting for me, which is actually the sample chapter of like my book (laughs) is like, you know, I'm walking to the office and I'm like, the evil police are here to arrest me. And instead my counselor was like, you're going to college. Like anyone with this story, like, um, all four counselors at that school of 4,000 students started submitting me to scholarship applications. They started, you know, helping me get my act together for the SAT, the ASVAB for the military, you know, all these different things. Um, and I, I did end up, you know, getting a scholarship, going to college, which was phenomenal. And then, but still everything's within a structure, right? There's in all of these things, there's a, a grown-up and there's a sort of command structure telling you what to do next. Yep. And so then I'm graduating in 2009 with an honors degree in English. You know, I was the valedictorian at my college. Wow. And I thought at the time I was like, man, I was so lucky I won the lottery of birth because even though I was born in a crazy cult to a 
15 year old girl in the Philippines, I was an American citizen. And so I was able to come back here and pull myself up. And I really wanted to like do something to kind of pay back that debt so I could move on and live my life. And now knowing what I know, I think that it was probably much more that I would have had no idea. I don't think I would have known how to go out and get a job, how to, you know, go out and move somewhere and make new friends and get my life together. And the military, oh, and 2009 was relevant because, of course, the economy was not great. Right, and right. so the military and specifically the officer program was this really wonderful option for me yeah. to go do next. What were you hoping to get out of the, the, this program, the officer program specifically? Like when you walked in, what were, what was your expectations and then how did it, did it meet or exceed or were you underwhelmed? So, yeah, so it was interesting. So I was one of those people that was like, I want to be. I don't want to be an officer. I want to be in military intelligence because I've heard about this and it's basically sounds like it's all about understanding other people and other cultures and including people that you think are evil that are trying to kill you. And I can do that. You know, like I've had experiences dropping into completely foreign worlds and having to not only survive, but thrive there and deal with people that may or may not like you and navigating these different situations. I was right. like, I'll be great at that. Not to mention, you know, as a lieutenant, you start off with $45,000 a year and, you know, 40 to 60 people under your command. I mean, the early officer years in the army are really unparalleled as far yeah. as leadership development, I feel like in the outside world. And I kind of just looked at it as like, great, this is an opportunity for me to do something cool for three years. If I hate it, I'll leave. And if I love it, I'll stay. Um, I will say for the first three years, I pretty much absolutely hated it. Yeah. Um, I ended up staying anyways. But um, it was one of, the, one of the reasons was you you were for deployed. I mean, you, you went to Afghanistan and, and saw some shit. Yeah, um, I literally went to basic training, which, you know, I just have to say one of my first thoughts at basic training was, oh, I just joined another cult. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, that was my comment last time. I didn't want to make it this time, but yeah. Yeah, no, my my editors always try to cut that line because they're like, nobody would say that. And I'm yeah. like, every veteran says that to me. <laughs> like, we all get it. Um, and and, and, and I, I yeah, I said it last week, right? Like it's, um, it's one of those things where, um, we, we align when we're talking to a veteran, the first question is how long were you in? Right. And it's the first question we ask a felon. Uh, we oh. talked about it last week too, but I mean, I can imagine like, it's the same thing, you know, when you're talking to your sisters or brothers or other people that have gone through this cult, like it's probably the same, like how long were you involved in this cult? Yeah. And we have, you know, the cult kind of fell apart in 2009 and everyone kind of had to go get their lives together. And we have a term for them called never lefters. And I feel like it's kind of similar to like people that get out of service or people that retire, you know, with like the mindset and, and the different level of, you know, institutionalization and how well you get along in that environment. So yeah. for sure, lots of parallels 
and then, yeah, I was, I went from training, you know, I went to basic training, officer school, intelligence school, and straight to a unit that was deploying less than two months later. And I deployed. Um, in the meantime, I had never had the opportunity to do sports, got into the army, realized I loved running and kind of being a badass, you know, huge feminist. I'm like, oh, I can run faster than the boys. Cool. And so on my first deployment, I did got the get the opportunity to kind of be hand selected volunteer to be one of the first like, it was a class of 43 women that the army was putting together to put into deliberate ground combat for the first time, wow. which is, of course, not actually different from all of the combat women have been doing in every war that the U.S. has ever had, but significant in that it was being done deliberately because they needed women out there. Yep. And that was a, you know, of course, really cool experience really cool team experience too um also very heartbreaking when we lost people i'm sure yeah and and i think what what's interesting and i'm I'm sure you're gonna have a different perspective than i did for multitude of reasons one i was in the military when we were in peacetime two i was in a i was a male white cis male uh, on a boat with other men and i didn't we weren't we weren't a, um, uh, a combined unit and third, um, I was enlisted, not officer. So there's all these different variables that make your experience much different. Um, what I'm curious about is when you did that, what were your what were you hoping to get out of it as far as um, as far as when you left and you and you take this experience, which, which we can go in sort of like the dark places you went to uh, with, with with your deployment. But when you when you left, what, what were you hoping to take away from that experience? From the female engagement teams or the yeah. combat teams? Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, you, you said it before. Like, they hadn't done this before. You were essentially blazing a trail for females behind you. And that's, in some regards, it's a lot of pressure to be put onto somebody. Yeah, you know, I would say none of us, I think, thought about it in terms of, like, the history and the tradition that we're creating right now at the time. For me, it was a mix of, like, oh, cool, I get to get, you know, spend days away from this desk job, because I was still an intelligence officer. So I was doing intelligence, but and then going to the infantry and doing patrols. So I get to, you know, do something different, see what's really out there. But also, I just I loved being a badass, you know, like, I loved the fact that I would go run my physical fitness test in 12, two miles and 12 minutes in bright pink shoes. And the men would just cry, you know, um, <laughs> I've matured since then, but at the time I just, I really enjoyed being like, I can do anything the boys can do. This is the opportunity to prove it, you know, let's roll. And I remember coming back from my first patrol and telling some of my friends like, Oh my God, I was in a fighting position pointing my weapon at possible enemy on purpose, like generals intended for me to be there. And my friend was like, well, was there enemy? And I was like, no, but that's not the point, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was, it was, I think, you know, none of us realized, I mean, Josh, like we didn't get awards for that. We did, I got a certificate of completion for like the 40 hours of training I did. Nobody was looking at it as a big deal. In fact, when I queried the army uh, before my TED talk to get some statistics, they were like, 
no, we weren't really keeping track back then. So if you say you were the first class and you were 43 women and you were around this time, you're probably right. Wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's fascinating. They weren't even tracking this. This is insane. Because It was kind of in secret, too. Like, it was still illegal in yeah. 2011 for women. This was kind of the generals going rogue. You know, it wasn't, like, actually secret, but it wasn't, like, the American public did not really know this was going on. In fact, my mother was very unhappy um, <laughs> when she found out about it when I got home. I'm sure. Uh, if you're if you're just turning in, we were talking to Daniela Young, uh, author, speaker, entrepreneur. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back right uh, after this. This hour of the Startup Radio Network is supported by Bridges to Change. Bridges to Change's mission is to strengthen individuals and families affected by addictions, mental health, poverty, and homelessness. They use their voice and resources to stand up to all forms of discrimination, mass incarceration, barriers to health care, and inequitable economic opportunities. Bridges to Change's goal is to empower people to be self-sufficient and become members of the community, who in turn offer the same opportunities to help others. They strive to have everyone leaving their organization with stable housing, social support, sustainable employment, education, access to health care, family engagement, and goals for the future. To get involved, donate, or to get help, make sure to visit www.bridgestochange.com. And we're back. We've been talking to Daniela Young. She's an author, entrepreneur. Go go see her TED Talk. She's amazing. Uh, we've been talking about the experience in the military. Now we're transitioning out, right? You're getting. You're done with your second tour in a different cult. <laughs> now you're transitioning out. Talk a little bit about that. Uh, the transition into, you know, getting out of the military. Yeah. So. You know, I think because I spent my entire life transitioning, I was just like, you know what, just getting out of the military is too difficult. So let me get out of the military, get married, become an army wife, have a baby, <laughs> uh, move across the country and get a new job. My first corporate job. <laughs> yeah, you know, all at the same time. Um it was very intense um in many ways. I think no matter your experience in a, you know, sort of extreme lifestyle, all controlling group, it's nuanced, like we said before. So it's good, it's bad, you miss it. You know, I'm still in the inactive reserves. And so once a year, I've got to go up in Tacoma and sign a paper. And I'm always like, do I want to go back? Like every time you see the people really? in uniform and you miss it. Um, I, I never get further than that thought, but yeah. <laughs> I do always, you know, think about it. Um, so it was, it was rough, but I would also say I was aware at this point, you know, this is a transition. I've been through this before. Um, you know, and if you do go check out my TED talk, it's all about transition and the yeah. low points of my life where I had struggled with suicide and struggled with depression. And this time I knew that, like, I think the number one key to trans, well, number two keys to transition is just like finding your people and finding how to translate. Um, or like in my TED talk, how I say purpose, people and processes. And I was able to do it a lot more deliberately. 
I had a lot of success getting a corporate job that paid a lot of money and then I absolutely hated it. And so after a couple years, and plus the fact that my husband was a special operations helicopter pilot who was gone all the time, I had a one-year-old, said, you know what, I'm just going to take some time and figure out. Um, and I, I also give a lot of credit to mentors. Um, one of the things I learned when I got into entrepreneurship was you should always have a personal board of advisors, just like you have a board of advisors for your company. And so I did that. And I'd had this one mentor, especially when I got into speaking, people were like, you know, Daniela, like your army stories are great, but don't talk about the cult. Like that's dangerous. That brings judgment. That's all this different things. And I was like, no, I don't think that's right. Uh, but I didn't, you know, it, everything's a journey. So I didn't have all the rhetoric and have all the answers yet. But I had this one amazing boss who was my battalion commander on my second deployment who when he'd heard my story, my background story, he'd been the first person to ever say to me, you know, not just like, wow, you're, you're such a amazing like person and American. He said, you know, you should really think about how all of your experiences tie in together, you know, the, the call, the military. And then after I started writing and speaking, he continued to push back to me, like, write about being a mom, write about being a, a marathon runner, write about veteran service organizations. Um, and what that ended up kind of all coming to was organizational behavior. But yeah. even that I didn't figure out till about two years into entrepreneurship and by which I mean just like trying and failing many, many different companies. <laughs> you ended up uh, creating a, a company that I think fits perfectly in, in, in your background, which is the cultural forte. Talk a little bit about why you created that and, and what you learned from that process. Yeah. So one of the things I learned is in entrepreneurship, that's really cool. And I think is so great for veterans is that when you write a resume, people are looking at like your formal experience, you know, and my formal experience was six years as an army officer and that's it. But when you start a business or when you're trying to sell, in my case, consulting services, you are whoever you say you are, you are how you present yourself. And so I was able to get, you know, booked as a speaker or get brought into a company as someone who has 32 years of experience studying organizations and human behavior and group behavior. And one of the things I noticed is that everyone who says they care about business has a business plan. But every business leader, at least in the late 2000s or the 2020s, will say that they care about culture. And then when I asked them if I can see their culture plan, they were like, what are you talking about? And so I, I created a company which was, okay, you shouldn't have to worry about culture. Bring me in, which was sort of based on the idea of the S2, the, sorry, the intelligence officer in the military. Yeah. In my case, I was a 24-year-old with four years of experience advising a colonel who had 18 years of experience, but it's because that was my sole focus. Right. And right. so you run your business. Let me take my sole focus on culture and a lot of these military planning strategies that I've learned to take this very soft, fluffy idea of culture and actually create you a plan. And I found out that when most people 
they say, yeah, you know, values matter to me. But how do you take your values and turn that into your daily decision? You know, like, am I going to take this extra meeting today or not? You know, am I going to send this project to Josh or to someone else? Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's a very productive, like, process-led way to do that. I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't understand how important this piece is. If you don't define your culture, the culture will be defined for you, right? And so I think entrepreneurs kind of gloss over this as something they be able to deal with later. But even when you're a team of two people, defining this from the get-go sets the stage for the next stage of your company. Like, do I have that pretty close? Yes, absolutely. And um, that all will tie into what I'm doing now. But, you know, this is where I started realizing, like, all the people that said not to talk about the cult or that the cult wasn't relevant were wrong. Mm -hmm. Because that's where, you know, no one sets out to build a cult. And I know that because I came from that. And, you know, these days I'll describe the children of God as a group that started out about love, faith, and Jesus and community and ended up, you know, being involved in pedophilia and religious prostitution and constant preparation for the apocalypse. And that's because it wasn't being done deliberately. That's because if we just go humans first, and in this case, Jesus first, and like put everyone together, love, faith, blah, 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 everything will be fine. And um, literally one of the things I want to do in my PhD or my, my education that I'm starting now is like find that point. Yeah. Very often people focused, culture focused businesses have a point where they just veer to become either ineffective or something worse. And 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 then we all have already decided as a society that uh, profit focused businesses are not what we want. And so how do we take the people focused businesses and make them not become, as I like to say, you can't spell culture without cults. Um <laughs> Such a great line. Uh, the So the why is perfectly defined. Why you created this company, perfectly understandable. Some of the mechanisms of growing a business, finding customers, understanding how to express your value proposition. How How did the military and your background prepare you for that piece of it? Um, I think just the fact that like I understand process and group structure right like sort of it's in my bones Mm -hmm. and so you can take crazy ideas and figure out you know like in consulting a lot of people have a very struggle with it because the idea that like you're the person you're speaking to is maybe not the person you're selling to. And so you have to create these different value propositions and approach people in different ways. And there's code switching and there's operations planning and everything seems huge, but you can break it down to different levels. You know, some of the intelligence tools that I learned, like you plan for the most likely, but you talk about the most dangerous. Mm. Um, So you plan for what you hope for, but you know that things can go terribly wrong. Right. Um, In, in any kind of military navigation, you know, I was in aviation, but you, when you're 
trying to walk a straight line from one point to another point over a large distance or fly a straight line, you need to have checkpoints along the way. And I think so many companies that do the work of culture and setting up what they believe in and the way things want to be, they don't do, they, they miss that final piece, which was kind of my coup de gras, which is like, how are your checkpoints? Because if we're honest, we don't know how a new cultural thing that we put in place is going to go in real life. We think we do, but we don't until we put it in place and we actually see how people react to it. You know, testing, pivoting, all of that stuff, which is both entrepreneurial, but also very military, yeah. um, comes together. And once I feel like business leaders start to understand that and also start to see culture as a thing that can be very business focused, process focused, operational, they love that. Yeah. Um, some of the best companies I work with had really well-defined cultures, right? I, uh, Twilio is probably the best example because they have this thing on their website called the nine things, but they were filled with things that um, you understood as an employee, what drove that company and and how to make decisions around those values, right? So it was like being frugal, being transparent, all these things. And, and Jeff got the CEO, got them from Amazon when he was at Amazon. So it comes from a place where, you know, this is certain, some, some well-defined business cultures when you're when you're approaching a business how do you how do you tell somebody that maybe they're, they're not even thinking about this but they're engaging you because it's important to them they need to understand how they can be better but how how hard is it to give them the feedback that that this is something that's important this is how you fix it um and and how does that how is that typically received in a company um, so the hardest thing is the getting the initial clients, you know, yeah. because it's kind of like telling someone they need therapy. Um, that can be very challenging. Sure. Once I'm, I'm in a company, I have no problem telling you what you need to hear and where I see the problem. And that's where I think consulting is great. And that's also where, you know, my job in the military was to tell the commander that he can do things his way, but everyone might die. Um, and it, it's important to look at these other sides. And so I, I'm very comfortable with that. And one of the things that I found as far as getting clients was that getting to know and networking with other types of consultants was very clutch because somebody would go in and be like, these people think they have a finance problem and I'm a CPA, but they don't have a finance problem. They all hate each other and they don't have a consistent financial basically values, right? In theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I kind of began to see that anything that's complicated to fix is usually not an operations problem. It's a culture problem because business leaders are, tend to be great with operations, yeah. um, not always great with culture. And so if you can get in there and get them to see that your engineering problem right now is that you guys built an app without knowing why you built this app and how this app makes sense for your company. It's not an engineering problem. It's a culture problem. I, I it's funny. You said that, you know, 80%, there's a really uh, clear statistic about companies failing, right? 80% of companies fail, not because they didn't have the right product, not because it was the right timing, not because, uh, you know, whatever they didn't have customers. It's, it's people, people, right. you know, fail companies. Um, so, Talk a little bit about the persona of a of a founder or a company 
and their and the profile in which this would be successful, a cultural, you know, consultant coming in, what does that look like? And how quickly do you recognize when this isn't going to go well? Um, yeah. So I think there, there's a couple different levels, like, like any company, like any startup, you know, in the very beginning, you need to do things like quick and cheap and at the lowest level. So when someone's a two person startup, they, there's some important things they can be doing, right? Like different personality testings, different, almost awareness. Um, but it's a different level. You know, you don't need to spend $3,000 to bring me into your company at that point necessarily. Right. However, you know, rule of fives, it's hard to manage more than five people. It's, you know, no longer a family business five years in a lot of times is where you really start having some struggle. Um, and a lot of times with a company, what that looks like is going from the, the 1 million a year to the 10 million a year and expanding past your initial core group of either, you know, families or co-founders or whatever it is that has been running this business and communicating. And now you need structure and now you need sub leaders and now you need, you know, all these different things. And so that, is as I think are the two different times to start looking at it. And, you know, these are also the things you want to do before you have problems with it. And what I found uh, too, to your point of like what works and what doesn't is that oftentimes the people that want to work with me are the people that need me the least. (laughs) Um, But the people that need me the most aren't, there yet you know like if you don't believe that culture is important if you think that culture is just something fluffy and feel good then it's not gonna work you're not ready for it you know i had a client who was running a business with low-level wage earners um with a lot of immigrants and she refused to even consider white privilege as, as a thing that existed. And that was a situation for me, you know, where we talk about an entrepreneurship, like you're not the client for me, you know, not, not only am I not the coach for you, you're not the client for me because you're not ready to do the kind of work that we need to do. And she had a very profitable company and it, you know, was ready to go to the next level. But those were the ones that I had to opt out of, you know, as a, as a consultant, you want to be careful that you're not taking on a client that you're going to fail. Right. No, definitely. Uh, so I want to talk, you know, you're not doing cultural forte anymore. You're, you're literally, if people could see you're, you were talking from, from your RV and you're traveling around the country right now. What prompted you to, and I'm very curious is on this on a personal level, cause you're my friend. What prompted you to just say, fuck it, we're packing it up and we're just going to go across the country with our with our kid and and just go around in the middle of a pandemic? All right. So, (laughs) you know, you guys have all heard that for the past, well, 33 years, but very intensely for the past five years, I've been focusing on transition and group behavior and understanding. I've also been serving in veterans organizations. I was running a chapter in one of them. And then I was on the board of Josh's organization. And I know how hard transition is. And my husband was coming up on 20 years getting out of the army. He joined at 17. And my husband was one of those guys that was like, 
nope, as long as I get a job, I'll be fine. That's all it is. And he's a pilot. So we were at the largest pilot shortage in history. So he had a guaranteed job. And, you know, we're, oh, we're so happy. We're so great. Everything's fine. Meanwhile, I'm like waiting for, I was already prepared for things to kind of blow up. And yeah. then we, uh, we took two months to travel to Brazil, which is my family raises my child in Portuguese. So it was kind of a, a cool personal thing for us. I did some speaking with the Brazilian military and those two months were the longest time we'd spent together almost since we got married. And then we came back into COVID into a straight up quarantine, which is the three of us. And so what it turned out to be was in five years of marriage and having a kid, those five months, that was the first time we'd slept in the same place for five months. Wow. And it almost broke us very quickly. It was, you know, it's no fun to be married to the transition expert when you're the one transitioning. So I could see that from my husband's side. Um, I had to have a friend grab me by the collar and say, don't help him until he asks for help. Yeah. Um, but, you know, obviously in the veteran world, so many people, their families fall apart. And I, I definitely understand people who are like, my, my current life doesn't fit with my circumstances anymore. And they make a different decision. I or we looked at it a little bit differently and said, you know what, maybe we just double down on our family and change all of our circumstances and really set ourselves to work at this. And for me, this hasn't been different than the work that I do with my company, you know, as far as, as you know, as my friend, I was like, you know, the veterans I need to focus on in 2020 are Tom and Daniela Young, like that yeah. I need to focus on helping. And from my family, you know, um, interestingly enough, we only had one kid and people have always said to me, but you have to have another one because they have to have someone who understands what their life was like growing up after their parents are gone which the realization there was families are like little tiny cults. Yeah. Cause I have 5,000 people that understand exactly what right. my life was like growing up. And so a family, if you look at a family as the smallest sort of level of organization, we actually sat down in our bus one night before we left Seattle and we created, we walked through my culture planning chart and we created for our family values and a mission um and we're the the plan is actually to travel the country for two months and then travel the world for two years and live on all the continents and my husband is getting over you know a lot of his own trauma related to being a soldier on killing machines for many many years and we just want to you know our our goal is travel the world, learn to be better humans. And we've set kind of all these different, you know, metrics and checkpoints and um, so who, who everyone what, is in our company. What I love about it is I follow you, uh, you know, we follow each other on Instagram and you, you post daily, you know, this is day, what, day 60? Day 37. Day 37. And you, you, at the end of the day, you post this little 
you know, thing that shows what you guys do and what Lorelai is doing and what you guys ate. And it's really, um, it go, <laughs> it's very Daniela, by the way, it's very <laughs> on, on brand for Daniela, but it's great. I, I, I love following you along, uh, following along with your adventure. I, and we only have a few minutes, but, um, I want to talk a little bit about your book. How is it going? When is it going to be released and what is it called? Yeah. Um, I do. I just want to say though, one thing is like from a culture perspective, as someone who is very much a you know huge Democrat, traveling the country right now during COVID, leading up to the twenty twenty election, has been fascinating. You know, oh, when you drive oh. through Wisconsin, you understand why they are so different from Seattle. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's been super cool. I All watched right, so you uh, post about pe- Pennsylvania and nobody wearing masks. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yep. Oh, it's, Pennsylvania. Been, it's been interesting. Um, <laughs> Montana versus Maine and mask usage and outdoor oh, space. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Um, but so my book is called currently titled uncultured of course that can change and it is what they call you know a feminist inspirational memoir which is all about what as women what we will and won't do to be a part of groups right and being a part of groups is a human desire that can be so strong that we will literally give up our own humanity in the right set of circumstances. And so I bring you through, of course, my whole life. Um, Interestingly enough, I'm writing it with another woman who has the completely opposite uh, good girl life, uh, normal, nice life. And yet we can relate on every single theme, right? These are just themes of, of being a human and more specifically being a woman in a man's world and men's groups, which are, you know, still hold all the power in today's world. And so, yeah, it's, you know, we're interestingly enough, like the, the formula for a runaway successful memoir, which much like entrepreneurship, I'm finding, you know, there's a process to building a company. You need a little bit of luck, but mostly you follow the process. And the formula for runaway best-selling memoir is very interesting, unique story full of themes that everyone can relate to. And, you know, we're, we're all in groups to, to bring back, you know, the sort of suicide and depression, I really, really believe that there's one cause for suicide and it's loneliness and you can be lonely in a crowd, but if you can't figure out what groups you're a part of, you're not going to survive. But if you don't sort of, I define my thirties as intentionality. Um, If you don't figure out why you're in the groups that you're in and what your purpose is and who your people are, it, it can be really rough. And it took me, you know, 33 years to figure that out. Um, But, you know, and then I'll just say like the process has been cool and writers and entrepreneurs really need to talk to each other more (laughs) because on the entrepreneur side, everyone's like, oh, just publish your self-publish. I didn't want to do that for a bunch of reasons. And I, I really, for the past three years, I've been figuring out my path to getting a book deal. Yeah. And, you know, when I got my agent is because I got an article published in a big magazine, an agent called me four days later, signed me on the spot. And everyone that I met in publishing is like, Daniela, that never happens. 
And I'm like, well, that's funny because I planned this a year ago, right? Like I set on a path and I I did all the things. Of course, there was luck, right? It's yeah. lucky that he read my article that day. Sure. But the the path and the process has been interesting. So literally today, I'm sitting here in Lakewood, Ohio, met uh, for the first time the woman who knows every detail of my life because we're writing a book together. Uh, yeah. We met in person. Nice. And we... Uh, we're going to write some very interesting articles about uh, women writing with children hanging on them after this, probably. <laughs> but uh, we come out. So the book is not sold yet. Oh. <laughs> and that's why it's currently titled Uncultured. Um, so we are at company wise, we're basically at the fundraising stage nice. now. So a, a traditional book proposal is like a 50 page uh, proposal to convince fundraisers that at least 100,000 people will buy this book. Nice. So we are at this stage where it's amazing writing. It's got the business plan in there. It's signed off and approved and it's going out to at least five publishing houses on submission tomorrow. So well, our, our fingers um, crossed. Yeah. One, one plus years, especially because any book that deals with the military has to go to DOD for a read, Oh boy! but we're also starting the, the article writing campaign. Okay. So people can follow me on Daniela M young on Twitter, Daniela M young underscore on Instagram, and then, or drop their email, my website, which is Daniela Mestinek young.com. And I will absolutely, of course, let everyone know when the book comes out. You are always a fascinating uh, person to talk to. I always, I, I miss talking to you on our board calls, but, uh, but more importantly, it's just fun to watch you and your adventure. So um, thank you for coming back on. It's always a pleasure, like I said, to talk to you and, uh, and keep posting the, the pictures of that adorable little girl, man. Thank you. Thanks so I, much, Josh. Uh, you're always a great conversation as well. <laughs> Thanks, Danielle. You've been listening to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Tune in every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific. Listen, learn, get shit done. See you guys next week. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.